Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to mitigate crises and help teams get back on track. This podcast is about helping the C-suite leader to navigate challenges with confidence. For today's leader, I'm here to help you get back on track. Tomorrow's leader, let me partner with you to learn the secrets of the C-suite. Wherever you're at in your career, this is the podcast for you. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of the Drop-In CEO brand, and I am so thankful you've joined us for another amazing episode of the podcast where week after week, I speak to amazing leaders, and I'll just let you know, I am often inspired by their stories, and hopefully you will as well. And if you like this episode, please share it with others. Don't keep this to yourself. Let's pay it forward, rate, review, subscribe, so we can continue to bring you great programming. And on a personal note, you know me, I am here for the C-suite leader of today and tomorrow to navigate challenges with confidence. And that's why I bring on amazing guests week after week. And today I am so honored to bring to you Malcolm Peace, who is the founder of Sitsera Growth Partners, a company specializing in acquiring family-owned small businesses with established Texas legacies. And he is so focused on this because he wants to be able to give people exactly the tools that they need to realize their business goals. And he does a lot of this pro bono. He pays it forward. He is a great human. He's got a great backstory. I can't wait for him to tell his story. Malcolm, welcome to the show. Oh, Dave, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. This is really an honor. And you know what it is? The reason why my listeners, this is so important, is that I'm on an entrepreneurial journey. I am still learning. I am four and a half years into this, and it is not for everybody. But if you have an itch, if you think you have got the next great product or service, definitely take a risk on yourself. Nobody else will. But when you listen to people like Malcolm, he is somebody that believes in that small and medium-sized business owner, and he is here to help. So I can't wait for him to now share a bit about himself personally and the journey he's been on in this purposeful work. Yeah, thanks, Deb. It would be wrong of me not to start with just kind of where my family came from originally. So my family originally came from South Africa, Southern Africa. My parents were both born in Harare and they moved here to the States. I was born and raised in Austin, Texas. So first generation Texas, um, but yet have very strong roots to Southern Africa and just generationally there. And so in that, you know, when when most folks that have come to America with the idea that they are seeking a better life and seeking opportunity, very entrepreneurial background. My dad was running import export business. My mom is in IT. She won the green card lottery. That's how we ended up in the states. And you know, candidly, at the end of the day, I have always felt like you know that was their world entrepreneurship. And it took me a long time to get to the point where. My ideas are worth something. I could go do something with it. I always found myself kind of in that second seat for a long time uh, where I could take somebody else's vision and go run with it. But at the same while, I always had this itch of, you know, I have this idea, I have that idea, or, hey, I like that business, but I would tweak this or or what have you. And so um, I'm grateful for where I am today, um, but it would be, you know, totally amiss if I didn't contest to just watching my family build small businesses. Um, watching them kind of live their own entrepreneurial journey and being able to get kind of where they are today and giving me 
confidence that it can be done. And it's not always right up to the right corner. It's, it can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge and there's you know good times and bad times. I, I love hearing those backstories because again, everybody's got a story that is worth sharing with others. Sometimes we hold back a little bit and want to just kind of get to the transaction or the topic at hand. So I appreciate you sharing that. But one of the things you said that was very inspiring, you said just something about my ideas are worth something. And so many people poo-poo or put aside those crazy ideas that they have. I mean, I do remember just to raise money as a kid, I'd have the lemonade stand or I'd make arts and crafts or I'd do magic shows, anything I could just to make a little bit of money and be independent. I think I've always had that itch, but went into the corporate world and then that itch started coming again. And you know what? I may have started this business, I'll say it in my 50s, but I am so glad that I am going with that itch and believing that I have something worth saying, something worth selling. So kudos to you for for moving forward on those feelings. That's awesome. That's really great. Appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. So, but I want to go, I'm so curious. I ask a lot of questions. Again, my listeners just get to listen to my curiosity here. The name (laughs) of your company, Sitsera with Grove Partners, very unique spelling. I've never heard anything like this before. Tell me more about the name of your company. Yeah. So it originated. So my grandmother, I would say, is a storyteller at heart. She, You could sit down with her at an individual lunch and she would tell you story after story. And I always say to her, where did this next story come? And I'm sure many have family members like that. And she lived a very interesting life. She had a grand or my great grandfather, her dad was originally from Portugal and moved to the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe with a very entrepreneurial mindset and started a farm, a dairy and cattle farm on the border of Mozambique and Zimbabwe. It was at the base of Mount Sitsera. So that's where that comes from. And candidly, you know, that has always been the story of this place that really my family held on to in a lot of ways, but also um, was a beacon for just great service to the community as well as employment to the local folks. And so that's what our real essence is, is that we want to be an employment and an opportunity within the companies that we buy that have a real testament to servicing our customers well, as well as taking care of those inside the company. And so that's the essence of it. Rather than you know some name that comes from left field, I really wanted to be able to speak to, this is what our true value is. Um, our true value is to take care of people inside and outside. I love those purposeful, <laughs> purposeful stories about why you do and what you do. And, um, you know, before we jumped on here, I was very, very interested in your business model. Now it talks about your business is a company specializing in acquiring family-owned small businesses in the Texas area, but you also equip them with the tools and the challenges, et cetera. And I was confused a little bit, but I want you to share with my listeners because there's somebody out there that might need or be interested in what you do. Tell us a little bit more about how you do serve those companies. Yeah, at Sincera Growth Partners, we buy businesses that are doing 3 to $12 million in revenue that have been around longer than 10 years thus having an established legacy in Texas in the blue collar industrial space. And very specific because I really do believe, and you know, everybody's journey is different. Mine was a talking to a guy that owned a roll-off dumpster and porta potty company that really sparked my interest in this space. But when candidly, what happens is in that space with a lot of blue collar owners and folks that have done trades and such and such forth, they have often been, you know, a tradesman themselves. Maybe they were a welder themselves. Maybe they owned a roll-off company with their dad or whatever the case may be. And they got started or a landscaping company. And they grew what I think is the hardest segment of business from zero to a million to $3 million in revenues in that space to do. 
And so all kudos to them. It's a skill set that I think is incredibly hard, but there's a different skill set once you kind of reach that seven figure mark. Taking a business and scaling it up to be able to be sustainable, to not, no longer be you plus, you know, as many hands as you possibly can get often below market rates, anybody you can, you know, get in the family to join or whatever it may be, um, to a business that's professionalized, a business that um, has kind of working order to it. Um, and it can also honestly you know, scale in a direction that's sustainable. And so that's what we do. We implement low code, no code software into these businesses to manage data, to get more informed decisions while simultaneously adding standard operating procedures to create a longer sustainability of the business. Mm. You know, I can so relate to that because my husband comes from a legacy third generation painting and decorating contractor and in his lifetime has then expanded that into construction management so he can GC any particular job. And he also felt that growth, not only with his father's business, it just got to be, you know, top end, but it could only grow so far. And so my husband rolled up his sleeves and brought it to the next level. My husband's business as well, slow start, got it to a level, but it is brute force. It is passion. It is sweat, et cetera. And and to your point, yeah, you can be very successful, but it does plateau until you change the operating systems or how you hire or what have you. So really appreciate that. Yeah, I think that's key. You said a word in there, plateauing. So a lot of the businesses that we end up actually working with are often growing at, you know, five, six percent a year. They're very flat. And and I would say that, you know, all kudos to them to getting to that point. It's another level of sweat, blood and tears to get it to that next level. And often it's a different set of skill set. And so what I also often people, you know, often try to communicate is, what took the skill set that it took before is not going to be the skill set that it needs, you know, in the future. And so really let's let's look at this business where you're no longer in the middle. And you know, I say that really poignantly because often in these businesses, what I, I like to see is to understand what is the other key members or who are the other key members for that matter that can actually add value here. And I know that sounds, you know, rudimentary in a lot of ways to most of your listeners, I'm sure, but when you have a business that is centralized around the owner and not decentralized, and there's not an organization chart, a lot gets lost in the owner's brain and in the owner's capacity. And so we, we look to look at is, hey, can we remove this owner? If we do, what would happen here? If we were to increase sales and the owner is no longer involved in the sales process, what would happen here? Um, and that and that really is kind of our due diligence process as we're looking in these businesses. Um, we want to I like to call it the plumber analogy. We like to be able to push as much sales down the pipeline and just see where the leaks are. Um, and so, anywho, that's that's what we do kind of on a day-to-day basis when we're looking at businesses. And then that's really the playbook that we do once we acquire them. So I can support that because I have been called into some medium-sized businesses, second generation, probably on that same sales revenue level. And they were very successful, but in order to get to the next level, they actually, there was a customer requirement that all of their systems were documented. So I came in, mm. documented all the systems. Now they had good processes, but they weren't institutionalized. And if any of the senior leaders left, yeah. they were highly knowledgeable that knowledge would go away. So definitely very, very critical to scale to the next level. But I'd like to transition a little bit. So how do they show up for you? Do you find them or they find you? Because I want to, and I also want to understand what are they feeling? Where are they at in their business journey when they feel I need some help or thank goodness, (laughs) Malcolm showed up. Tell me a little bit more about how you guys get together. 
Yeah. So I find that we interact with people that go in the three D's. I am, this is what I call them. So it's, they're either dealing with death. They're either dealing with life challenges like divorce or they're having disinterest. And that's often really what happens is in this case, they are, um, they're looking at it and saying, Hey, if I'm going to run this business for the next five years, what's it going to take? Um, and candidly, do I have it in the tank to be able to do so? There's a lot of folks that are younger than you and I that can, you know, go put all this energy in this business. And I'm looking to say, how do I marry the two things together where we can bring in young folks and new technology and so on and so forth to be able to grow this business for the next legacy? And, and truth be told, and I think that this is the challenge of you know my generation, is that there is a lot of folks that are not interested in this space. They don't want to be in these boring type businesses. They want to go do the next AI. They want to go do the next thing. And there's a lot of business owners that don't have a son, niece, nephew, or daughter that they can sell this business to. So when I walk in the door at young 30s and say, hey, I'd love to be able to run your manufacturing company, your brick manufacturing, or your porta potty and roll off company. I would love to be able to do that. Let me show you my playbook on how we would do that. Their world lights up. I mean, it, it's really a special opportunity to be able to kind of be that surrogate, you know, son or daughter that they've always wanted. Um, and that's what we try to do. That is a really, really interesting selling point. That legacy component. And you talk about, you know, that has a Texas legacy. But that is a heartbreaking moment when that leader or maybe the wife, you know, or somebody acquires the business mm-hmm. and they don't, they don't have that legacy to pass off to that they know that baby, that thing that a lot of people put a lot of energy into is safely being passed off and can continue to serve others. What a, a noble thing that you actually do. Yeah, that's I mean, that's kind of you to say. I think, you know, at the the crux of <laughs> the crux of it, I um, you know, a lot of these businesses they were a toll on the family. And I think that that is the price that gets paid in a lot of ways on those early days. And I want to honor that in a lot of ways, because, you know, candidly, like, I wouldn't be able to do what I do without that sacrifice. So, I mean, I I really mean it that I understand why sometimes the son, niece, nephew, daughter don't are interested in the business. Um, But at the same while, I want them to feel like in five years time that they can come back and they were honored through that process. They weren't bad mouth. They weren't shown like, Oh, how bad was that old process that they used to do? No, like this oh, it was necessary. Yeah, it's <laughs> time to change, but it was necessary at the time when they were doing it the way they were doing it. It was a thin budget and they needed to be able to do it the way they did it. Um, but now the business needs to scale differently and, and we want to grow employment. I mean, I often, whenever we look at to buy these businesses, not to be too tangential in this conversation, but we we interact with the local municipalities and say, hey, we would love to keep this business here. Can you work with us? What can we do? Sometimes we get grants for stipends to retain the job. Sometimes we get grants for stipends to be able to grow the business um, for job wise. So you know, our intention is really to, you know, be a beacon in the local area to be able to work with people inside and outside and do the right thing. Oh my God. So this is urban community development work. It, <laughs> you know, your purpose is so much bigger than just how I help families transition their businesses or grow their businesses or what have you. So uh, kudos for what you're doing and how, how what you're doing for those small businesses, their legacy, as well as growing them, et cetera. I wanted to take a moment to remind you that a recent study showed nearly 60% of leaders feel depleted at the end of the day. And this feeling is a key indicator of burnout and makes it difficult to lead and inspire others. If you've ever experienced that restless exhaustion, you know why CEOs are amongst the most likely candidates 
you're experiencing job frustration. I wrote The CEO's Compass, your guide to get back on track, to confront those feelings and create a plan that is sustainable for you and your organization. I created a seven point assessment that will help you figure out your problems in days, not months. And it includes so many resources, worksheets, videos, and much, much more. If this is you, please head over to my website, dropinceo.com, and click on my products, The CEO's Compass, and order yours on Amazon or other outlets. And now, back to the conversation. Now, let's talk about you because I'm sure that it's not always been easy. I'm sure you've had to go through growth. And also, you also probably want to scale your business. So I just want to know again, like, Tell me a little bit more about your business, where you're at now, and you know what are your yeah. plans for the future to scale and be in more in service to more people. Sure, yeah. So the original model, and this comes from a bias. You have, I was always in that second seat. I, I loved operations. I loved rolling up my sleeves. I always had a visionary kind of mindset where I could see where we were going, what we wanted to do. But I loved rolling up my sleeves and get my hands dirty. And so when the original model came out, as we were buying businesses in Texas. And I would travel basically for the first six months until we stabilized the business. I have 120-day plans, all these things that we implement. And as those as time has gone on, it's become very challenging for that to scale. Because while we're also you know, stabilizing that business and bringing our shared services into that business, whether it be a marketing component, a sales component, all these people that we bring with the house, it can be really challenging to also source the next deal that we're looking at. And so it was like a faucet for a long time where we would turn it on, we would find that deal, we have to turn the faucet off for a bit, not sourcing deals anymore, and we go spend time on that business, get it to a good spot, establish a new operator, all that kind of stuff. And it just isn't sustainable. Candidly, I don't want to be on the road forever and ever. I want to continue to develop leaders and continue to develop these businesses and play a critical role. And so we're rolling out a process where we will hire internal operators prior to buying the business. And they are a part of the conversation at the time of due diligence. So that owner gets also very familiar with them because sometimes the owner stays on for a little bit, right? And so we want them to be very comfortable. We want it to be a successful transition um, for everybody involved. And we want to make sure that sometimes that business might be better suited with that owner versus or that new operator versus me. Uh, we've had instances where there was an Asian food distribution company we looked at, and I found an operator. We didn't end up closing for a few different reasons, but we found an Asian operator that was, I mean, he was stellar comparison to me. And so that that's what we're trying to do is we're trying to be in a situation where we can take our playbook, our philosophies that go back to Sitzera and its name, and to go partner with these business owners to let them see their legacy continue for the next 10 years. So we're always looking for smart people to join in that. So this is really cool. This is a really cool business model. So when you are, again, courting small businesses to bring them into the fold, do you already have a pool of potential operators or do you kind of wait till you have the opportunity to then source the operators? How do you kind of keep enough in each pool such that you can marry the right business and operator together? If it was anything less than just working a lot of hours, I would tell you, uh, but we we do that. I mean, we really are courting people in both categories. Um, we raise capital on a deal by deal basis as well. So I'm doing that continuously. I enjoy conversation. Um, I often you know, have assistants that help and other folks. There's not just me, right? We've got a lot, a big team now. We're growing the team continuously. But yeah, we're doing that exactly that. We're, we're courting folks that want to be operators within these businesses. 
um, that want to be a part of something bigger. And, and there's a lot of folks that don't. I mean, truth be told, I ran five miles with somebody on Wednesday morning, a guy named Kyle, local area, wants to be in Texas, um, but has connections throughout the state, um, has different reasons why he might be in each place. Um, and he's transitioning from a, you know, a different business ownership background. And so we're constantly doing that. We're constantly interacting with folks that would be interested in running these business. And in the same while, we're interacting with business owners and continuing to communicate the story and the process that we would take their business through. Okay. So if you're if you're in Texas out there listening to this podcast now, look up Malcolm Peace. You never know. You just never know the power of the podcast. <laughs> what are some characteristics or backgrounds of the ideal potential internal operator for one of your business entities? Yeah. So our playbook, I would say, is pretty simple and for the most part can be implemented by our shared services, the people that we bring around the business. And I use that term just to explain contextually. It's We've got folks that we have used continuously within our playbook, whether they're internal or contracted to us, to be able to go implement certain aspects of the playbook. And they stay in um, for a season of time or extended period of time being able to implement that. So that's our shared services. So that sits inside Sitsera and it goes into one of the businesses that we acquired. That operator needs to be able to understand that model and to an extent, but really at the end of the day, have the ability to have some EQ because that's such a sensitive time when we go buy these businesses. I mean, you can imagine the conversations that come up from employees, whether it be does my job still exist? Um, are we moving locations? Is this, you know, you I can na- I could name a thousand questions that get thrown at you. And a, and a really good operator needs to be able to sit at the table and listen really well and be capable of implementing a vision once they've heard all the players that are involved. Um, and so that's our big hope. So what's the definition of an operator? Is he the CEO, president, COO? Like, would you qualify operator. So I understand. Yeah, they would be CEO president of the acquired company. But you say they're already within your shared services. So they've got these people like, I'm just trying to learn your model. Thank you. (laughs) So think, no, that's great. That's, that's great. That's great. Yeah. So due diligence often takes about 90 to 120 days. So with due diligence period consists of after we've signed a letter of intent and LOI, we've made a rough contract. It's non-binding, but it's a rough idea of what the contract will look like with the business owner once we've acquired them. And that operator goes with us during that journey of discovery to learn more about the business and whether or not it's a viable option for us to go you know, long-term with. Um, and so that operator often is learning our ethos and our processes during that time, as well as learning the potential acquired company. And that allows us to be way more familiar with the way that we do things after we acquire rather than in the case that we used to do is I would go stabilize the business for six months and then go implement an operator that we got a headhunter from or built relationships with or what have you. And then I'm not even sure if they're really the right fit on day one. And I can, you know, I'm sure everybody can attest to this that there are many times you hire somebody and ah, I don't know if that was the right fit after the fact. And because it's such a sensitive time, we really try to keep in mind that our goal is to retain these employees, retain our customers, retain the status of where things were when we first got engaged with the owner um, and allow them, again, just to transition really well. That first year is super sensitive. And so that person as an operator, CEO, president of the new acquired company needs to have the ability to listen well and understand what the employee needs are at the time. 
it is different than another persona like a fractional COO or fractional CEO. They're brought in for periods of time, but this is kind of a slow ramp and part of a much longer journey. It's very interesting. Anyway, you got me thinking. (laughs) (laughs) So I'd love to know a little bit more about this because this is something uh, that's for me and my business someday. You talk about things where you have some insights into private equity and also raising capital for the acquisitions. Maybe at a high level, tell me a little bit more about what that looks like because you never know somebody I know or maybe I might need to do that at some point. Yeah, so we raise capital on a deal-by-deal basis, which allows us to give flexibility to the investor on a liquidity period. So what that means is, in a traditional private equity fund, maybe the fund is 10 years old, they often try to get liquid around year seven of the business that they hold. So if they buy a business in year three, then they will sell in year 10, basically at the close of that business or of that of that fund for that business. And so that puts an artificial timeline and often has different incentives for all the parties involved versus in our model, My goal is to buy a business, stabilize it, and candidly send checks to my investors every quarter. That's the intent. We often um, hold distributions for the first year to stabilize it, like I said. And then after year one, we start distributing quarterly. With all that to be said, you know, our minimum check size is $100,000. We're constantly wanting to engage with folks. And candidly, I want to build relationships with people that are current business owners, or are, have you know transitioned out of business or something of that nature that can add value to what we do. I love being able to email David. I love being able to email John. And I love being able to email Sally to be able to pick their brain. Hey, what do I do here? Here's what's going on. Here's the circumstance. I just had someone that quit out of nowhere and he was vital to what we're doing. How do I source somebody quickly? And this, uh, you know, candidly, we're always learning and we're always wanting to move quickly and efficiently. Um, So I like being able to make those phone calls and every person kind of brings a different um, value to that. So this is a wow for me. Again, I love the work that you do in service to leaving a legacy for so many people. But coming back to you a little bit on your journey, I always love to ask this question of business owners, like what keeps you up at night? Or was there ever a pivotal point where you were a little worried, you were having some challenges about the business, et cetera? And then how did you get through it? I'm curious. Yeah, the world that I live in before we acquire a deal is a business going under LOI and in due diligence and then just dying. Out of nowhere, the deal dies and the owner walks away for whatever reason. And I cannot count on how many times that has happened. So that that keeps me up at night. Also, candidly, there's there's a risk component I take for every deal. And it's not sometimes it's a financial risk, more or less. And sometimes it's a it's a professional risk or a reputation mm-hmm. risk. You know, if I were to go raise a fund today, uh, which has its own challenges, um, it would give me a, a lead time to be able to kind of build that reputational risk. In this case, we, we take a year to stabilize. If I can't return and make that commitment to my investors within a year, there's a reputational yeah. risk from that. So that that candidly is part of it. Um, we're always trying to communicate, you know, the challenges. We have times where it's hard to get, you know, cash through the door or sales dipped after we bought a business and we've got to re kind of establish ourselves in some ways. Um, so with all that to be said, um, you know, what keeps me up at night is I have a fiduciary responsibility to take care of my investors and my employees, both in and outside the house from a customer as well. That keeps me up at night. I want to be able to look myself in the mirror and be able to look my kids in the mirror or in the morning when we see them and at the dinner table and say, you know, daddy's working hard and this is what happened and this is real life and this is business and this is what I signed up for. So um, there's no getting off this train for a little while, which is okay. 
But at the end of the day, I, I truly do. I feel like I have a fiduciary responsibility to all the parties involved. I can so relate to what you say because we have also raised three kids. We've had to eat a lot of home-cooked meals because going out is expensive. But by the way, we've built a lot of home values by being home because my husband has had a business for many sure. years and I had the I have a business and there was a time, honey, I don't have medical insurance. We're going to have to lay out a lot of money. Can yeah. you carry me? It does take a strong family yeah. unit to be able to weather those ups and downs. So I want people to find you. If there was somebody out there listening right now who happens to own a business and maybe be is going through a challenging transition, but hasn't yet made the decision that I need a partner to help get through this, what would you say to them? And maybe that'll bring them over to you. Yeah, great question. It's lonely, but we're all alone. <laughs> That's what I would say. Um, there's a community of folks, both in your local area and around. And I'm sure I can, if I can't connect you to somebody, I'd love to be able to try my best to. There is a, a slew of folks that are in the thralls of it, just like you are. Um, and we're all trying to figure it out. Um, there's a new challenge each day. Um, but at the same while, that's the, that's the challenge that we signed up for that can be kind of exciting and exhausting at all at the same while. So Deb will give out my phone number, my information. Um, I'm more than happy to bounce ideas off of. Often I tell folks that are in this space, business owners, this is the largest asset that you will probably ever sell. And I know there's a ton to learn about that and a ton to understand about what it would look like to transition and or take it to the next level, whatever your desires are. I'm here to be a resource. Um, we try to put out as much information as we can to really just educate and give back and um, you know, I, I definitely get it. Uh, what you've done is a huge sacrifice for everyone and it can be um, incredibly lonely, but at the same while, incredibly rewarding. And that's what Malcolm brings to the table is that peace of mind. You're going through a transition point. He can be your partner to safely and caringly hand that business off to the next generation, even if it's not by direct blood. So it's noble work that you do. I'm so grateful that Faith, let's give a shout out to Faith who found this podcast and just said, this is going to be a great conversation. What I love about the Drop-In CEO podcast is bringing people like you that have has that entrepreneurial spirit, that have that risk, that uh, want to give back and educate. Before we jumped on, <laughs> Malcolm was saying that, you know, I just want to educate you. Just the 15, 30 minutes, let's just talk. Let me just help you through this. Because, you know, that's what we have to do, build trust with our audience, build trust with people before they're ready to say, I want to partner with you. I need your help. <laughs> I trust you, you know? So this amazing interview, we're going to bring this to a close. I'm so grateful that you dropped in on the podcast. Any last thing you've got the stage one last time before we bring it to a close? Yeah. Feel free to reach out to us at any point. It's Sarah Growth Partners. It's spelled T-S-E-T-S-E-R-R-A. Uh, love to be able to start a conversation, whether you're a business owner or someone looking to get into small business or what have you. I'm, I'm wide open. You have my email information. You can get it back to me anytime. All right. You've been an amazing guest and I do wish you and your company continue success. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO podcast. I hope you are inspired by our conversation and can apply what you heard to your business or career goals. If you found this valuable, please share this show with at least one friend who will find it useful and inspiring. When you share this podcast, it allows me to continue to help C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow to navigate their challenges with confidence. To connect with me or learn more about the Drop-In CEO services, go to my website at dropinceo.com. And until we meet, I wish you well and much success.